when I met you for the first time in Idaho, you were in a dress at the time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. My my brother uh, wears he, a dress. Goodness gracious, that's why I'm a mess. <laughs> now, I didn't know if you were trans or I fi- I assumed you were non-binary. Are you non-binary now? No, no. Well, it depends in in the way that I used to mean the word. I could still arguably say I am, but I have all the problems that are unique to people with penises. I have unique problems because of my having been born with a dick. And those unique problems are problems that I have to deal with, that you have to deal with, that anybody who was born with a dick has to deal with. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning, and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't see- We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. David McCarracker is the founder of a theory lecture and education platform called Theory Underground. He is the author of two books, Waypoint, Time Energy, Critical Media Theory, and Culture War and Time Energy, Why You Have No Time or Energy. And... Wait, let me try to read that again. He's the author of two books, Waypoint, Time Energy, Critical Media Theory, and Culture War, and Time Energy. You have no time or energy. One more time. (laughs) God. He is the author of two books, Waypoint, Time Energy, Critical Media Theory, and Culture War, and this book here, Time Energy, Why You Have No Time or Energy, which he wrote while working at Amazon. When not teaching or organizing for Theory Underground, McCarracker is listening to audiobooks or writing books in the bathrooms at Amazon. He has a wife and cat and a son. Oh, wait, no, he's got a wife and a cat's son. Is that right? Cats. You don't really have <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our okay. first child is our first child is a furry one, but we, you know, we do plan to be parents of real okay. humans eventually. Well, good. You know, you, you gotta keep the labor force uh uh, you know, well-populated. Um, so I just oh, want to start. I, we're going to talk about this book today, uh, Time Energy, Why You Have No Time or Energy. And I want to start by asking you, what is time energy? So time energy is a concept that comes out of, um, I, I like to say it's between and beyond Marx and Heidegger. Um and when, of course, I say beyond, I mean that in terms of Alphibung, this is sublation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've always been uh, really taken by the existential standpoint, right? And Marx takes on the critical political economy standpoint most of the time, unless he's writing expressly political pieces. Um, the existential structural uh Tension is one that I, I'm still working through methodologically. It's a complicated issue. But basically, what I like about Heidegger um, is the way that he takes from Kierkegaard and Nietzsche 
and tries to found an existentialism um, based on first what's given to us phenomenologically, right? Staying within Kant's uh, phenomenal reduction. And mm. yeah, and so to, I my the, the the job of my thesis for my master's thesis was to do an existential phenomenological analysis of labor time or sorry, labor power. That was a slip labor power specifically. And the reason that I did that is because I think that's the most important um, concept in my life. Right. Um, my whole life has been as a worker. Uh, my parents have always been workers. Everyone I've ever known has been workers. I was the first person in my life that went to college or like, you know, in my neighborhood or in my family that went to college. And um, so thinking, thinking about labor power is something that I started doing when I was in a, a political philosophy class that introduced Marx, but didn't really give him his due. Um, you know, we spent weeks and weeks reading Hobbes and Plato, but we, we glossed over Marx really quickly. And I remember being like, why, what's, what's, what's with that? Why, why did we skip over this guy? And I didn't really know anything about Marx at the time. Um, and so I started doing some research on my own, started talking to professors uh, at the campus who I could track down, who knew something about Marx and um, got one of those professors to give some talks to the philosophy club I was a part of at the time. And that's where I got introduced to, you know, wage, labor and capital, as well as a strange labor. And so that was my real point of entry beyond the manifesto was thinking in terms of how there's a structural system that is, uh, at the time, I would have just said alienating us. Um, I think it's more complicated nowadays because, you know, after Althusser, there's this big debate about whether Marx is always thinking in terms of alienation or if that's his Feuerbachian stage. But it doesn't matter. What mattered at the time was that that was the first time in my entire life that I began to think about the fact that it's not just me or other actual people who are to blame for all of the problems in our lives. Like I still have responsibility. Other people still have responsibility. In some sense, we still have choices and matters, but what sets the horizon of our possibilities, so to speak, or uh, the actual environment that we live in, that's structural. And, you know, it was a tremendous relief to, to realize it's, you know, people in my life who, who let's just say, didn't do a really good job showing up in relationships, for instance. Well, yeah, there's part of, you know, they have their part to play in that. I have my part to play in that. But at the end of the day, there's only so much that we can do when we don't have any time or energy to really uh, do those things that matter the most to us because we're always working. Right. And so that was, that was kind of the point of entry was always thinking about time and energy. Um, and then through my work in, on my thesis, eventually I came to time energy. And what came out of that was that this is using Heidegger's terminology, an existential, which is to say like an existential structure of our existence. It is the thing that is necessary so that we can do labor power in the first place or the, so that we can be seen as or show up as labor power in the first place. Okay, so um, let's talk about the word existential or existentialism. I'm not sure 
Um, when I think of existentialism, I think of Sartre, maybe Kierkegaard as a as a uh, you know proto existentialist. Um, I'm not a scholar on Kierkegaard or Sartre, but I you know dabbled when I was in my 20s. I read about existentialism, got a big anthology of essays, read some Sartre, um, and my understanding of existentialism is the claim it, it's an anti-essentialist doctrine of philosophy which claims that existence precedes essence that is that we are self-creating that we uh aren't born into the world with our personalities fully intact or with our moral values uh already given by some platonic realm say but rather we determine our morality and our personality through our actions in life and that we are therefore existentially free we're not bounded by right, um right, right. some structure that exists outside of our uh of our own choices and actions is that a good definition is that the kind of existentialism or the existential fact of time energy that you're you're um pointing to that's a really good question and summary of basically what is meant by existentialism, especially the kind of existentialism you get into when you first start studying it. You know, like when I first started, I started with Sartre and Camus. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like the two of them are kind of the go-to. Um, and of course, with uh, Camus, it's the myth of Sisyphus. And with the, uh, the Sartre, it's existentialism as a humanism. Um which Heidegger then, you know, argues against, and I guess that was a real um, a bummer for Sartre. He wasn't too happy about it. Um, Heidegger was kind of an asshole. We all know this, um, but but for Heidegger, the issue I think is deeper than just the fact that he was kind of post-humanist at this point, which is something I already take issue with in Heidegger that I I don't like that, but. Um, you know, I think we need to think about this question of what the human is, especially today. But uh, the issue, I think the deepest issue between, say, being in time and existentialism as a humanism is that uh, for Sartre, existence precedes essence, whereas for Heidegger, existence is essence when we're talking about the human being. And so it's not to, that it precedes it. Like, uh, Sartre was mostly interested in the fact that we can make ourselves um, and that we're kind of cursed to be free in that sense. Mm -hmm. We're constantly faced by non-optimal, you know, catch-22 kind of situations, and that's what he's focused on. But for Heidegger, he's focused on thinking about existence as a, a fundamentally different mode of being than the kinds of being that, say, a, a tool um, like my water bottle or a pen might have like that's a tool being as opposed to um, s something that you're just analyzing an object of an, an analysis, right? So, you know, he would call those ready to hand and present at hand, but those two modes of being are conditioned by the fact that there is a kind of human in the, in the process that is existing. And, but what he means by existing is not like this sort of like Buddhist Zen kind of just being in the, in the present, which is kind of how people like Byung-Chul Han will talk about uh, Heidegger. No, existence for him is always projection on a horizon of possibilities, which is to say like, we're always, we're always projecting forward. 
Um, even if you're saying, well, I'm just going to sit here on the couch for the next three hours and do nothing. Well, you're projecting doing nothing into the horizon of possibilities, which is to say the future. You're collapsing a bunch of different possibilities into, well, no, I'm going to sit on the, on the couch, right? And that's a decision. And so the choice and decision thing that Sartre really takes up is there in Heidegger, and it is important in Heidegger, but Heidegger, and this would get us too much into the weeds, but Heidegger, I would argue, is not a individualist um, existentialist. He, he definitely has a sort of totalitarian conservative streak, um, even in being in time. Um, and well, so, okay. So yeah. let me just ask, okay. So I'm not, I'm really not a Heideggerian scholar, but I have, again, like, you know, four beginners comic book version of Heidegger in my head and, uh, and, and only a sketchy version of that. But tell me if this is right, that Heidegger believes that we are thrown into a world. Yes. That um, when we arrive due to our, heritage um we are already defined as a being a way that and that we inherit ways of being in the world um so that then we are kind of to charged with being uh disciplined by and loyal to um dasein to a way of being in the world um and that uh, in in a way, this is a return of the essence, but the essence isn't um, in some platonic realm, but is historically developed. And it's a matter of a tradition or a way of life that you're already thrown into. Is that right? You're kind of you're, you're actually circling in on the thing that everybody likes to skip over, I think. And, and it's very important because. Um, the standard American Heideggerian response would be just to say that, well, you know, you're not, you don't have to take on that heritage. Um, your historical standpoint is what you're thrown into. You know, you didn't get to be born in ancient Greece. You didn't get to be born in the future. You got to be born right now, whenever that is. Right. And you find mm -hmm. yourself here, you find yourself here, um, having never really made any real choices in the matter. Uh, you've been living other people's choices because your parents, your school, et cetera. So this is, you're all, cor you're correct on all of that. But of course the standard comic book version, which I think you just went beyond that mm -hmm. would be to say, Oh, you know, it's, it's falling your throne, falling into they-ness, which is just a way of saying everyone's got like their normal way of going about the world and that's what you've internalized. And now you do, now you do that. But the way to get beyond that is to have being towards death and by, by, by anticipatory resoluteness towards death, you'll be able to kind of weed out the inessential things about your life and then realize what your true possibilities are. And that's where people read him as an individualist existentialist. So, so almost compatible with like liberalism. Mm -hmm. Um, which if you stop on chapters one through three of division two, absolutely everything up through division uh, chapter three of division two, all of that fits that comic book approach. But what you're talking about is where we get, I think the rubber really hits the, the pavement is chapter five of division two. And that's where he brings in heritage and historicality. The fact that um, in in theyness, in falling, in average everydayness, like whatever, the sort of norms that we pick up, 
it's just kind of like this ambiguous possibilities that we project and we don't do, and we for the most part project them in a sort of passive way even if you say well with new year's i'm going to run every week um and you're saying no i'm choosing this it's like yeah but are you really choosing your health like are you going to like his as he would say commit to health and like really research and develop a, an understanding and health as a possibility itself or are you kind of just copycatting what you see other people doing and 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 even when you're actively choosing you're still kind of passively choosing because you're not trying to get to the root of this activity which is you know your life process it's health um and so for him it's like we're kind of swimming in a pool of average vague possibilities and we kind of flitter from one thing to another in a sort of restless distracted uh tranquilizing way and then you know this sort of thinking about how this is all finite uh, and and then running forward into danger is supposed to strip down out of all of those possibilities is supposed to help you find the real important ones. And then in chapter five, that's where you find out the real important ones for him. That's going to be, you know, for him, it's the Volksgemeinschaft, right? It's the, it's the, the, the people, the culture, but all this is where we can also say that race back then was almost inseparable from the word, um, from the word people, right? And so Volk is the actual word there. And that's obviously where it gets, um, that's where the whole book is kind of getting quilted by this moment where he's a complete, um, not even conservative because he wants to, he, he's, he's more reactionary than a conservative because he wants to tear down the, the, the traditions and the establishment as it's been given to him because he thinks we're so far gone from our real possibilities. We have to kind of start over again. We need to burn this thing down. It's well, let a, me ask, okay. So you said something interesting. You said that when you were first thrown into the world and, and kind of, and I don't know if this is Althusserian or Heideggerian, but, and called into being by the world around you, you know, um, hailed as a subject. Interpolated. In yeah. Interpolated. Yeah. Um, uh, you, this is all Althusserian, I suppose, but, but nonetheless, wh wh however you want to think of it, you're thrown into a world that you didn't choose, that you didn't have a part in making. It's already there before you. It all already positions you in a place in that world. But you said something interesting was that in that place, in this world, you have, uh, no responsibility, um, to or you're not given a direction right away there are a lot of things you might have internalized but there but it's also uh, vague or open still right so my question is why what kind of world is Heidegger talking about being thrown into it, it, it i think you know if you were thrown into the the world of feudal relations, you wouldn't feel as though you had um, decisions to make necessarily, but only duties or responsibilities to uphold, maybe, uh, given your station that you would be born into. So is, I mean, does Heidegger want to claim this is the human condition for all time, that you're thrown into a world and then need to pursue the truth by clearing away the distractions and finding the the traditions of your people or 
is this something that he's uh, arriving at as a critique of, say, liberal modernity? Well, it's definitely something that he comes to as a critique of liberal modernity, but I'm not sure if he's going to transhistoricize it to say, oh, it counts for all time. Um, that's a that's a really good question. Now, I think the important part of the question, if I'm if I'm not, am I getting this right? Is um, the question of like what thrownness is and what the world really is, right? So world is not like the planet with the rocks and the trees and the, right. you know, deep, deep time, right? This is an existential world. And what Hubert Dreyfus um, teaches. Well, let's, this, wait, let's not says, call it an existential world. Let's just call it a historical world because the existential world. Thank you. Yeah. Um, says you are existentially free. You are an individual. You determine your own morality and all of that. That's ex that's from our conversation so far. That's where we where we put existentialism. So this is just a human world. Well, except, or except a, a I'm world using. Of, go ahead. He he does use the word existential throughout the book, but I did say that the way that he's using the word, as opposed to being this radical freedom thing, the way he's using the word is to say, there's no getting out of the fact that we're always projecting ourselves forward, and that's what he means by existential. And so you could say. That it's a, it, and when we say projection, we're not talking psychological, we're talking temporal, modal. So it's like, it has to do with time and it has to do with um, modal possibilities, right? What's necessary, what's not necessary, what's contingent, what's uh, possible, what's impossible. Right. And and so is, so here, here, we, here we have something that's kind of interesting just about existentialism, the term, which is that existentialism is thought to mean that there are no essences, right? Um, the, but uh it, ontology or the study of being is the study of what it is to be which is precisely i think a metaphysical study of essences right, right? right, right. so so and if we think being and existence are the same what it is to exist is to be then to to uh start with existence is just to start with the most abstract version of an essence as you can i'm reading the science of logic these days by the way so that's oh of course okay my, yeah but um but yeah so so existence as an ab a complete abstraction of just pure being say um is i think also where sartre wants to begin right but he wants to uh, and this is where I, i'm not enough of a sartre scholar to know how he derives this sort of freedom from his study of being um and being in nothingness uh which which brings of hegel to me being in nothingness <laughs> um but nonetheless uh yeah so i just say that what we're talking about with this existence is an existence which for heidegger has historically determined um so i think the, the most the most important piece here uh to is there's a big argument in the field over whether he's actually the philosopher of being or if he's a philosopher who only cares about the uh, the question of what makes being intelligible in the first place, which is almost if we go with that interpretation, which is the Thomas Sheehan paradigm, uh, then he's not doing a metaphysics. He's doing a sort of he's 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 saying, OK, without do, without getting into speculative metaphysics, with just staying within what's phenomenal phenomenologically given, are we able to deduce and infer 
the grounds of what makes being intelligible to us. And that's that he wants to, uh, it's without doubt that that's his main uh, chore with his magnum opus being in time. Uh, mm -hmm. With the rest of his life, there's more arguments over the different directions he goes with that. But I do think that, that this is beyond dispute that in being in time, being for him is not, it, it, it might be the most abstract, it might be the most concrete, but he's kind of bracketing out that we can even know or ask the question of what it really is until we've spent the time like setting up, setting ourselves up to even ask the question. And he, he says to even set ourselves up to ask the question, we have to ask who's asking the question and is the kind of asker who asks that, asks, asks that question going to have the same kind of being as a tree or as a hammer? Well, no, you know, and so then what, what would its mode of existence be separate from the tree or the hammer? Well, it's projecting itself onto a horizon of possibilities, right? And so it is abstract, but it's also staying pretty strictly within the, the confines of what's given and then deducing and inferring on the basis of what's given. And then I would just say, I only, the, the caveat there is that that's what Heidegger thinks he's doing. I think that he stops doing that. He has lapses and he definitely stops doing it in division two. Cause I think that he, um, his life was in transition from being a critical philosopher into being an ideologue. And that, mm -hmm. uh, that, that transition is working itself out in the writing of this book. And so I have, I have my criticisms of everything he does and blah, blah, blah. That's kind of mm -hmm. neither here nor there. I am teaching a course on it and I just got finished with the lecture on chapter five, a couple of days ago from division two, which is why I'm all primed and I could just talk about Heidegger this whole time, but well, I'm, I'm enjoying the Heidegger talk, but let, let's, let's, yeah, let's return to time energy. But uh, I want to have one last yeah. kind of not go around on Heidegger per se, but to come back to time energy when you sure, yeah. are throwing forward this term time energy yeah. is it um competing with or vying to replace something like design from heidegger yeah that's a that's a great question so the uh short answer is the answer to your other question that kind of got us going down heidegger in the first place which was what's an existential right and so existentials mm -hmm. are the structures of Dasein and of being in the world. And mm. there's no separating Dasein from being in the world. Um, they implicate one another and they determine one another. And that Dasein without a world is what he would call just a subject, right? So the liberal subject is a de-worlded Dasein. Um, mm. And of course, you know, there's Dasein in its inauthentic sort of average everyday sort of way of being. And then there's resolute anticipatory Dasein that's kind of choosing its life. and But his basic point is that you're always choosing or losing. And that's why he says throne. The connotation of throne is like, you didn't choose to be here. And this, that's obviously something Sartre runs with. But, you know, just working within the, 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 the bracketed domain of this is uh, our starting point is the, the being that asks the question. And then what can we kind of deduce about its kind of worldhood? Um, he comes up with all of these different existentialia would be the plural of these existential structures. And those include things like understanding, state of mind, discourse, care, anxiety, 
uh, significance. Uh, it goes on and on being towards death. There's these different um, existentialia, and then they all kind of fit together in the way that all these German thinkers who were, you know, influenced by Hegel will do is it, you can't understand one of these terms without these other terms. But one of the biggest moves Heidegger's making to go beyond phenomenology, to go beyond his predecessors, uh, especially Husserl, is is bringing in hermeneutics through Schleiermacher and Dilthe, which is to say he takes the equiprimordiality, I don't know, this, I hate that word, of understanding state of mind and discourse um, to be his main operating assumption throughout the book. Um, and so what is that, what that means is just that understanding and then the fact that you have a state of mind, that you always have a state of mind, that you're attuned to the world through moods um, and that you are always in discourse. Right, we, we we can't think of ourselves before discourse. Right, we're we're language beings. For in 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 how we would how Lacan mm -hmm. would talk about it. Right. Well, these to say that these are equiprimordial though is to say understanding doesn't precede our moods, uh, and it doesn't precede language. And in fact, uh, the, the, it's the same way. No matter how you arrange it, all three of them require one another. But when he says understanding, he's not talking about this as a as a strictly intellectual kind of understanding. He's talking about a gut sense that we have for the possibilities of a thing. So for instance, like before you even learned how to use a phone, you had some kind of a sense for its possibilities. Uh, you know, when I'm working at Amazon, I don't understand how most of the equipment in there works, but I have a gut sense for the possibilities of different things, you know? Like a mechanical thing has certain kinds of possibilities that an animal does not have and vice versa. And so we have a sort of gut sense, and, and, but it's not a, a sense for its uh, essence as a substance. It's a sense for its being in time on a horizon of possibilities. So the kind of the, what can I do with this? What, what does this mean to me and what can I do with it? It's always kind of futural, future pointing, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, okay, I, I think it's fascinating and we could talk about the existentiality of the whole time, but time is an existential for him. It's a structure of our being in the world. My move is to say time energy is the existential and that he never thought about energy because he always took it for granted because he was always uh, the kind of professor who didn't have to do anything except for exactly what he wanted to do, right? Like Adorno in his little uh, essay on free time, you know, says that, you know, whether it's philosophy or the way he listens to or plays music, all of these things are not hobbies for him. They're passions. And he admits, you know, he says, I have some privilege, the fact that I get to do this, but because everyone else has to work, everyone else, when they're not working, their free time is re recreational time. And then he emphasizes the fact that that's recreating recreation, recreating labor power, right? So Adorno is very keen on this. Well, Adorno is keen on that because he takes Marx seriously. Heidegger's not keen on that because he takes his energy for granted and he doesn't try to think about what it is to be a human under the normal conditions of capitalism where you're selling I would say your time energy as labor power. And we're and it's not just that you sell it as labor power because you could be retired early, you could be unemployed, you could be 
uh, supported by other people, uh, whatever your situation is, the schooling system itself, as well as all of our social symbolic cultural reference points uh, and role models presuppose that the kind of the only kind of value that we can make in the world is one that's based in our turning ourselves into labor power, right? The schooling system presupposes that, of course. And so even if you become unemployed or or uh, are independently wealthy and you just don't have to work, um, you're not going to have like this kind of uh, leisure time that Adorno is talking about and that Heidegger presupposes because you've not been cultivated that way. It, it actually takes it takes training. It takes community. Uh, it takes a, a variety of things, including different role models who do who have their own kind of passion projects that are not profit directed in order to discover, you know, not just talent, but like the aspiration to be more than a, a producer consumer. Hmm. And so, oh, okay. Yeah. So energy, let's talk about energy is um, the part of the time energy equation here. It sounds to me like one of your complaints about Heidegger would be that he doesn't uh, recognize uh, something that someone like Marx recognized, which was before you can have culture or discourse um, of any kind or religion or traditions, you have to have in your way of life a way of producing the shelter, food, um, clothing, uh, maybe roads, the, the material basis for your existence. Um, yeah. And that so that is a matter of energy because you know if you don't eat you won't have enough biological Absolutely. energy to keep going um it's also another way people talk about it is a matter of reproduction and you mentioned re recreation including the term or idea of reproduction um so time energy would be uh, a way of being in the world that takes into account the need to reproduce yourself and for society to reproduce itself. Is that, is that right? Time energy would be the precondition for you being able to reproduce yourself and for society being able to reproduce itself. Well, the precon to say it's a pre precondition is <clears throat> true because and when you get thrown into the world, you have to be thrown into a world that's able to reproduce itself, right? right. But, uh, but as a way of life, as a Dasein, it would be your way of participating in the reproduction of the society that you were thrown into. Um, yeah. By On a material basis, not just on the basis of leisure, right, which you were talking about, which would be for an individual uh, uh, outside of the process of reproducing society, but for yourself and society, both. Right. 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 And so obviously for us, that's the commodification of labor power. Uh, in previous societies, it was just the outright exploitation of labor through slavery. Um, there's different ways of talking about it, but I would say in all of these, any social system is going to have some kind of an idea of how to work with time energy because i mean but it's like the fit you know it's like a, it's water to fish right like uh you just have it and then of course because you have it you don't have to think about it and then you use it right 
we have to think about it because we don't have it. And that this is where I have to actually define it. Because when you asked me originally about it, uh, I didn't actually ever define my term. And so at this point, it probably just sounds like I'm mashing time and energy together. And that just means time and energy. But the technical definition that I've been working out over the last couple of books here is it is large energy infused repeatable blocks of time that are reliably uh, spread, not just throughout your year, but like probably week to week, right? And I say large energy infused blocks of time because a person could get all you know granular and say, well, what about the time energy you know, of, of, of a minute or of five minutes or of 10 minutes. And the reason I've, this is kind of like the classic philosophical, you know, dilemma at what point, how many grains of sand do you have to add before it's a heap? Well, I'm going to go ahead and bracket out the when and how question and just say, I know as a worker, I do not have large energy infused repeatable blocks of time throughout my week. I know that I might have little tiny moments that might seem repeatable and energy infused. But as soon as we start saying large energy infused, repeatable, reliable blocks of time throughout the week, it makes really clear what's been stolen from us. And that is, well, you do, you do have those blocks of time, but you have chosen to sell your labor power to Amazon for a wage so you can reproduce yourself. Yeah. Exactly. And, 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 well, and you've and, chosen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, th- this is the thing about wage labor is that unlike uh, slave labor or serfdom, you are able or allowed anyway to go and work for anybody who will hire you. You don't have to exactly. um, choose a particular job based on how you were thrown into the world. Right. You can, you know, I just saw a YouTube video um, yesterday that said you should seek out rejection as a pathway to success, because if you if you apply yourself to as many different things as possible, trying to get jobs that you're not qualified for, trying to get into schools, you don't think you have the grades to get into asking people out who you think are above you, you know, in terms of beauty standards or sex appeal or whatever. Um you know, the only thing that can happen is you'll get rejected and you will be surprised how often you're not. So um, that's the position of the worker. They don't they're not constricted to where they try to sell their labor power um, and they can go apply for anything they want. And, you know, the only thing that they can be told, no, they cannot get a contract, but they can't be thrown in jail or or thrown off their land. Right. In a sort of sense, we even have the freedom of. Homelessness. I think this is actually a controversial thing, maybe, but I've said that before because it's like, uh, you know, especially with a certain kind of tanky, um, I, I just like to really emphasize, you know, the liberal freedoms have have some more than merely formal substance to them. And of course, yeah, we are coerced to work because we'll be homeless if we don't. But at least you can choose homelessness. Now, of course, in some cases, that's not possible. They're actually going to chase you out of the city or whatever. Um, and I mean, the conditions of homelessness don't really allow for a flourishing life. Uh, so what, you know, is that a real choice? Whatever. But the point is, is, you know, if I quit my job, they're not going to say you're a traitor comrade now, you know, to the gulag with you or whatever. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, there, the, the, the freedom to quit a job is a, is a, is a substantial freedom. 
when I was reading your book, one of the things I um, wondered, and I wrote this down and sent it to you, so I'm going to skip to it if I can find it, um, was uh, at some point you say uh, that all previous philosophies have ignored time energy. But I thought, yeah. reading about it, that Henry Ford didn't ignore time energy. He devised an assembly line to minimize time and thereby expend less energy in the production of cars, allowing for more cars to be produced and making cars cheaper, which uh, allowed for more energy mm -hmm. uh, to be spent on the production of cars. Um, the division and time, both. The division of labor and centralization of production created more useful things and made the reproduction of labor cheaper as well. So why would you say that Henry Ford didn't understand the significance of time energy? If I wanted to just be pedantic and not actually get to the heart of the matter, I'd be like, well, he's just not a philosopher. But, <laughs> you know, no, it, here's the thing. Henry Ford was a genius and he did think about time and energy in a, in a way that was uh, more sophisticated than most people. Um, and of course, you know, there's been tremendous gains made through that kind of systematization. Um, I, did you read the quote in there? I think I quote Foucault talking from the section on the Yeah, I did. I did read that. That was bells. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. But why why that, did you bring, summarize that and, and, and tell me why you're bringing it up now? Yeah. And so basically Foucault is, you know, he's talking about, uh, he's talking about, the disciplining of labor power in that section it's in discipline and punish it's in section three i think it's um it's a famous part about the the bells and whistles like it basically there was a time when work was a lot more um lackadaisical but maybe even if you didn't get to choose your own breaks um there was there was a little bit of 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 flexibility in the day um and around certain kinds of tasks and stuff but as uh as capital valorization is becoming increasingly not just intense, but also refined, um, the, the discipline apparatuses become so as well. And that's where we start getting the, the need for a clock that is able to count down to the second, right? Uh, that's where we start. Uh, everyone starts working off of calendars. It's no longer just priestcraft, right? There was a time when that was just priestcraft. And then the church bells would set the important times of the day. But all of a sudden, instead of church bells marking the important times of the day, and then people, oh, okay, yeah, let's go in for lunch. It's like every task you're doing is being counted down to the second. And uh, this is where uh, Foucault starts talking about what ultimately Ford develops, which is to bring it back to what you're talking about, which is the taking every task, breaking up down, in, down into its moments, uh, and then figuring out ways of of streamlining each of the processes in those moments in a way that will maximize uh, time freed up and uh, less energy expended. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, the tendency, though, and this uh, this gets to why automation hasn't exactly liberated us or anything yet, mm -hmm. right? Is just to say question. that. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Well, and that it's just that what the all of those gains in time and energy uh, reduction are made so that one person can do the job of 10 other people, 50 other people, 100 other people, right? Mm -hmm. So you have one cashier doing the work of 10 cashiers because they're running around helping people at the self-checkout. Or there's me 
you know, scanning products and uh, taking them off of the conveyor belt and putting them on the pallet and doing all of this stuff. But because there's so many robots in the process and because so many of the tasks have been streamlined in a way that helps get rid of, uh, 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 well, now no longer needed uh, workers, yeah, I'm doing the work of a whole bunch more people in that process, right? So mm -hmm. that's yeah, the, but you may not it may not be very grueling work if depending on how automated it is. So the the problem is, um, it creates unemployment. But let me put right, right. forward this this solution for you. Um, and now we're entering into you know very practical day to day policy kind of politics. Um, mm. But Andrew Yang, you know, universal basic income why not make a set of standard for uh universal wealth um which by the way elon musk talks about in the after the singularity right, right. singularity where the time energy will be so thoroughly rationalized and automated um that the amount of time a human being actually has to spend interacting with the reproduction the mechanism for reproduction of our material needs will be so small that we will there there thereby be freed up from recreation and yep. because we and and from uh time time energy as being the defining thing in our lives uh we'll have fully automated luxury wealth luxury capitalism i think would be how you right, right. must think of it but the question yeah. for us would be what is the difference between the vision of Elon Musk where post-singularity and the vision of a communist who wants fully automated luxury communism? Um, and and why? what is holding us back from realizing that potential that seems to be developed through like Fordism and, and um, right. the, the, the capitalist division of labor right 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 well and so i spent basically the year after writing this mm -hmm. thinking about that question um because it was i felt like the most important piece of the book that i hadn't written i basically wrote this in one sitting that started at like six in the morning and went until about midnight right so it was a full day like Arrowax style, one big long piece of paper. You just keep writing. Only your paper is your it was. computer. Yeah, uh, and I, I did a lot of it on the smartphone at Amazon because that day I was I was I I woke up and I was like I think I'm ready to write it and I and, and I had already had a few chapters of it written but I decided to start all over again and I just started writing. Um, and then when I had to go to work thumb? that day, did you write this with your thumbs? Really, did, did, the first. Did that the first half now of the, I resent I, you. Okay, now <laughs> fucking zoom, are you a millennial or a zoomer? I'm a millennial, but uh, fucking millennials with your thumb skills. I have to type, you know. I can't, I can't, I can barely text. Yeah, anyway, go on. I, I nowadays I always say there's only two uh generations, and they're they are these bimodal uh uh states of mind there and that is boomer and zoomer there's that's all there is everything else has been <laughs> washed away and then the only question is is in what respects are you a zoomer in what respects are you a boomer because you're the one who was helping me with my audio before we started recording today so in <laughs> right. that in in that respect you're the zoomer here but mm -hmm. anyway no uh 
I wrote the first half of it at a coffee shop and then I went to work and I was writing it outside of work. And I was like, I'll just be an hour late. And I kept writing. And then I was like, I'll be another hour late. And I kept writing. And then I was like, I'll at least go inside. And so I went inside and then I was like, I'll just go to the, the, the break room. And I was just started writing it on my phone in there. Did they get on you? Did you? So I'm, I'm writing a book about work at Amazon and in it, I talk about the, the, you know, kind of like what I'm interested in is the future of work and the fact that they have turned um, extremely difficult tasks into basically idiot proof, um, very accessible, like anybody can be trained into it and you can do it mindlessly kinds of tasks. And I think that's fascinating because uh, that's the direction automation takes us. And it's great as long as you don't have to do it too much, which hurts you. I hurt my elbow at the previous warehouse because um, you're just doing the same mechanical tasks all day. Um, it, it's great if you don't have to do it too much. <clears throat> And it's great if you can listen to music, podcasts, and audiobooks, as well as, you? you know, YouTube channels. Do they allow yeah. that? No, you, well, you're not allowed to, but I'm one of the, I'm, I'm, I belong to that uh, proud group of Amazonians that are one third of Amazonians, I, I think, just going off of my own sort of uh, experience in two warehouses. I would say one third of us have an, uh, the rebel earbud, the secret earbud. And some people wear it out openly. Other people hide it. I, I keep it underneath my beanie or uh, headband. But uh, if you if you wear it out openly, you might get talked to. I did get written up wearing it out openly one time. And so then and I was like, everyone else just wears it out. What the heck? And so then I just started hiding it. Um, but my 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 book about the future of work is is for people like us who are interested in that question. But it's also for uh Anybody who works at Amazon who might tune in and, and actually read it, I, I want to convince the management, even Be even Bezos himself, I want to convince them at a moral level that it matters that people are allowed to listen to things. Um, because otherwise, you just have the same thoughts on repeat all day. You're not adding anything new. It's And that's where it's truly soul-sucking. But you can get a lot of inspiration and mental cultivation being able to tune into things. So I take Why it as like a, they don't a allow you to listen to things. Uh, the simple answer that they give me, cause I've, I've talked to a few managers so far about this cause I advocate for it all the time. Um, is the, uh, they say, Oh, well, you know, a while ago, somebody had both earbuds in and they weren't supposed to. And we were, we were and an accident almost happened. And that's why we have to enforce this. And I'm like, yeah, but if you just had one earbud in and a one earbud policy, arguably that person wouldn't have had two earbuds in in the first place because they would have been trained to know that you only have one in. And then they go, well, there's just other safety concerns. And I go, well, that's that's where I go, okay, well, my brother works at a lumber mill with ropes and saws and chains, and he runs a forklift. And it's it's one of those giant forklifts. Like it required a lot of training for him to be able to do that. Uh, this is a much more dangerous kind of work environment than an Amazon ergonomic 21st century kind of warehouse, right? And my brother is able to wear uh, OSHA-approved headphones. If my brother can wear OSHA-approved headphones in a lumber mill, then I don't see how they get off saying it's dangerous. No, no, at a place not where to be quiet the sound, but to give him something to listen to as well, if he wants to. to... Oh, yeah, no, 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 he... OSHA approved electronic noise canceling, but you know, uh, Bluetooth enabled headphones. Yeah. So OSHA has these approved. Mm -hmm. So 
I think that it's a merely, uh, it's a, it's a sort of, you know, they don't want to put the extra thought into it. It's very easy for them to say, don't do it. And then if you're caught, well, if you're hurt and you, you happen to have an earbud in, they, they won't get sued. So for them, it's just them covering their asses. But I, I, I also, think that how it's, much churn is there? At Amazon? Oh, incredible. Yeah. It's just bleeding all day, every day. Yeah. People constantly leave. Yeah. Right. And are they get but, fired or do they, do they leave on their own accord? Both maybe? Um, I, I don't think people get fired very often. Okay. Yeah. The, I mean, you would have to do something really crazy to get fired. Like they, it's like, they're very liberal and not just like, not just like, oh, we have the rainbow and the pronouns and the, you know, that's sure. But no, they're, they're just, they're pretty forgiving. Like I, I take anywhere between, uh, two and five bathroom breaks per hour. And I often, you know, we'll spend at least five minutes in Listen, there. And sometimes I'm going to, I'm cutting this because I don't want you getting fired. And also I would advise you, <laughs> if you want to keep the job, don't talk about that in public. All right. So, um, yeah, no, 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 don't cut it. Don't cut it. Don't cut it. It's okay. okay. I'm, I'm, I, I, I talk about it on my podcast that is called, uh, workers of Amazon. And I'm, 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 I'm out here daring them to fire me. I'm waiting for it. Cause then I'll just write it in my book. It's okay. But anyway, that was let's my get boomer moment. That. that was my boomer moment, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Young man. No, it's okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, well, listen, so the, uh, there are a lot of things we haven't talked about with time energy, but it sounds for sure, like for what, sure. you're, what you're really getting at here in your book is the fact that you're selling your time energy to someone yeah. else all the time. So you don't have the, the, the time energy you need to develop your own independent life. Right. And that includes uh, on the level of uh, having good relationships or uh, or having a family or it can include that anyway on certain levels. Well, and that's right? that's what I put up at the very front is you know the I I, I kind of start with the sort of self help level because ultimately just you know between Henry Ford business success books and self help books like those are the that's where you find people who think about time and energy it's people who are thinking about success under capitalism and they talk about time energy as time and energy constantly. And for me, as someone who had never really read any serious nonfiction before the age of 22, let's say, um, I started listening to audiobooks that got into self-help and business success stuff at the age of like 21, 22, because I was trying to think, how am I going to survive? What, how, what am I going to do? You know? And cause my, my entry how old are you now, Dave? I'm 36. Oh, really? Okay. You look younger than yeah. me. I but then again, you know, like I'm, I'm 53. So for me, anyone under 45 looks really young anyway. <laughs> but uh, go, Yeah, you know, no, but I'm, I do have a baby face, but no, it was, what I'm saying is that uh, I started really thinking in terms of time and energy uh, during that phase of my life when I was trying to figure out how am I going to, you know, not be constantly broke, not be constantly just scraping by. Uh, and how am I going to get beyond the entry level into something higher up in the chain or start my own business. And so that's when I started listening to audiobooks really. Uh, and the thing is, is that, uh, all of that stuff breaks down, all of the self-help and business success stuff breaks down because, uh, ultimately we just have to work. 
And we just have to discipline ourselves to be able to show up and work. And there might be something, you know, you might be able to save a little bit outside of work. You might be able to, you know, do rich dad, poor dad and spend ever, all your money on assets instead of liabilities. You might be able to do uh, Stephen uh, Covey's, you know, seven habits for highly effective people and start to prioritize uh, your time in one of those, those, gr those grids with the different quadrants where you've got your urgent and important kinds of activities versus your not important but still urgent kinds of activities you know break it all down and then he says center the ones that are important but not urgent because otherwise we'll forget that and that's where you lose your family and that's where you are you know fail yourself and you know you you end up estranged to your kids and he's talking to the business class and so of course you know he's talking to executives who've lost their families and I, I think we all kind of get that. Yeah, that's where you 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 succeed, you you win the world, but you lose your soul. Um, in the sense of having lost relationships, now you have no respect from your own children uh, because you weren't there through formative stages of their life. Because money can buy you a lot of things, but it can't buy you the, that sort of uh, we would say quality time with your kids, right? And you know, taking them fishing once in five years isn't going to cut it. In fact. They'll resent you for all the other times you didn't do it at that point, right? Um, and so I'm centering, I, I start from that individual standpoint of you have goals, you want to self-actualize, you have projects, uh, you have latent talents that you haven't discovered. And if you have discovered them or if you have a calling, then you're going to feel the frustration of those aspirations, right? That, fr that frustration of those aspirations because instead of being able to learn the violin and become the virtuoso that you know you need to be or whatever, or speak multiple languages or whatever it is that you want to be able to do, you can't because you're exhausted. And so I do start from that individual level, but then I always take it into family, community, culture. Um, and I think that's the most important level because uh, you know the individual before it even realizes it's an individual was a child and that child had to develop and that child's not going to develop very well if their parents didn't have time energy. Okay. Right? And so that's like, great. Yeah. Um, Listen, we've been, we've been talking for about an hour. What I want to do is keep you around. I want to send you another link in a minute. Um, and I want to talk to you about something that happened a while back where uh, you were given uh, sublation, a little trouble just because we said we liked Freud and not uh, Lacan or something like that. I want to go back over that and see you. I know it wasn't a very serious disagreement, but I do want to know, um, yeah, like what what is it? What it what does Zizek and Lacan mean for you? Why is um, the difference between Freud and Lacan important to you and your politics? And um, whether or not I have wandered uh, away from the reservation by being interested in in people like Adorno and 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 uh, Jacobi. Um, rather sure, than sure, Zizek. Sure. So let's let's talk about that in, in the parrot room. Wait, go ahead, say something we, before we- say, Right before we cut this one. Yeah, thank mm -hmm. you. Be right before we close this one out, I guess as some closing thoughts, there's a couple of loose ends that okay. I just want to tie up. And the, the one was when I was talking about writing this at Amazon and all of that, um, where I was going with that was to say, after writing it, I spent a whole year thinking, how do I talk about this- thing where the more time and the more energy we save, the less of it we have. And there's like a sort of very abstract, very technical way of talking about it that Moish Pistone calls the treadmill in time, labor, and social domination. Mm -hmm. um, and But the thing is, is I was trying to write this book for people 
who aren't necessarily reading super technical stuff like that. Uh, and, and then thinking about it, I was like, how am I going to do this? And so I spent a year constantly just facing writer's block and, and, and I would try to read different things that might help me on it. Well, what I came to is the afterward that I wrote, like just a couple of days before this was published. I just had, this was another, I sat down and I wrote this in like six hours. It's called, it's called labor saving devices from Descartes to Keynes and Gores. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I don't know if I'm the first person to point it out, but I, it was, I, I had never seen anyone else talk about this in the discourse on method. Descartes talks about, uh, how if we unlock science, if the church gets out of the way of science, we're going to be able to have an infinity of devices that will be able to satisfy all of our desires. And he says, we won't, he says that these will be labor saving devices. He explicitly says that they're going to be labor saving devices, but in the same breath, he also says something about our workers, right? You, I don't know if you remember that quote, but so he's talking about our workers, but he's also talking about labor saving devices. And so everything is in its sort of seed form in Descartes' discourse on method. He even at the end of that, this is a side note, but he talks about the problem of uh, artificial intelligence and whether we'll be able to tell the difference between the machine, the machines that look like people and actual people. So he starts talking about that in the 1600s. It's kind of crazy. But, <laughs> mm -hmm. but the reason I, I bring in Keynes and Gores is because Keynes said that you know, by 2000 or, you know, the first uh, first decade of the th 2000s that we would uh, be working uh, 14 or 15 hour work weeks, right? Because of the, the time saving that we were seeing from these labor saving devices. And so, of course, my question is, well, then why, why is Keynes wrong? What is it that Keynes is not seeing? And of course, Gores, as someone who was heavily influenced by Marx and, you know, played a really big role um, for the new left, uh, he's also thinking about things like automation and UBI, and he's all uh, very critical of Keynes. And so, you know, I, th I think that he's way ahead of Keynes and he's thinking in the right direction, but, but his estimations as far as like how much time would be saved by automation were still way off. And so really like, what is it? And so ultimately that's what I try to do in the afterward is answer that question. And so... Hmm. Okay, uh, I'll great. just kind of like leave that as a hook for yeah, everybody. Yeah. People should go and pick up uh, Time Energy, uh, which is available on Amazon, I'm sure, and also off your own website, yep. right? Um, That's I'll right. I'll put a yep. link to both places in the description for this video and on and podcast. It, had, it has a new preface, by the way. Uh, it, in, in like three days, the new edition will be available. The new preface is written by Slavoj Žižek himself. Oh, my God. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>